John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Island in the South Sea Pacific in the late 1800s. He went to this group of islands that was well known for being cannibals. This was a daunting task for anyone to go there. And he went there uh, with his wife and little baby. They ended up dying early on in his time there. And he faced death uh, at many, many times throughout his life and ministry there. During the 1862, there was a civil war between different tribes and on the island. And he refused to leave, lest his efforts in, in sharing the gospel and translating the Bible would be lost. But uh, the people of Tana refused to leave their ways. They said, our fathers loved and followed it, said one chief. We love and follow it. And if the worship, as the worship of God, condemns it, we will kill and destroy the worship. And so they were very antagonistic towards God. And during this civil war, uh, Patton had to flee for his life. He was a friendly chief on the island, and he hid him in a large tree. And as he's going around, as the, the natives are going around, he's up in the tree, and he hears that night their shouts, their screams, their guns going off. And he's up there wondering, will I make it through the night? Will they find me? Sitting in the branches there, wondering what will happen to him next. I'll tell you at the end of the message what happens. But I'm attempting to do for you today what Mark does in this gospel, that he introduces a story, interrupts it with another story, and then comes back to the original story. He does this many times throughout the gospel. It's a way of writing to gain anticipate, uh, interest, but also in the midst of it, I think there's often insights that help give understanding to the rest of the stories. Uh, we've seen this already in the gospel. I haven't pointed it out. It sometimes it's called a Markian sandwich, like the bread, the meat, and then the bread. And in the midst of it, there's some insights that help understand all of the, the context. If you go back to Mark chapter 4, Jesus taught about the parable of the sower. And then, that's the bread. And then in verses 10 through 12 is the meat. And in that, he gives insight into why he's teaching in parables. And so, and then he goes back to the parable and talks about that. So that's the bread. So the bread, the meat, and the bread. And this is what happens here in Mark chapter 5. And there's other smaller ones, and he uses it throughout the gospel. Here he starts talking about the man who his daughter is dying. And then he gets interrupted with the woman with the flow of blood. And then he comes back to the man with his daughter who's dying at the end of this here. And in all of this, he's teaching about himself, and he's teaching that Jesus is Lord. As we look at this passage of Scripture, really, this has been the theme from chapter 4, verse 35, where we looked how Jesus was Lord over creation, the wind and the storm, and then he's Lord over demons, he's more powerful than them. And then today, we're going to see how Jesus is Lord over illness, and he's Lord over death as well, that he is God in the flesh, he's the Son of God who is all-powerful and sovereign, and he does what he pleases. He's not limited by these things, and he is in charge. And so we want to look, first of all, at seeing 
how Jesus did with uh, interacted with the man uh, with whose daughter was dying. We pick up in verse 21. Jesus had crossed over from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, from the regions of Gadarenes, where he had healed the demon-possessed man. And now he's back on the other side. We're not told where, probably the region of Capernaum, somewhere around there. And even as he's getting out of the boat, the crowd gathers around him. They come down to the sea to listen to him. And there among them meets him one who's called the ruler of the synagogue. He's one of the rulers, so this would be a larger synagogue. And the ruler of the synagogue was was the influential leader in the community, in the oversight of the building, of the services. He was someone who was an important man. And in this, his name is given. If you look, many of the miracles, no personal name is given. But here, his name is given. He's an important, influential man. But what does he do? He comes to Jesus, and he's desperate. His daughter is dying. They've done all that they can. She says in verse, says in verse 23, my little daughter lies at the point of death. She is, is dying. Nothing else could be done. And he was coming to Jesus, said, if you'll just come and put your hands on her, she could be made well. I think this should encourage us that even as we see many of the religious people rejecting Jesus, there were some who were still willing to come to him. Maybe they were desperate enough to come to him, but he came because he thought Jesus could do something for his daughter. And so Jesus agrees to go with them, and they go in verse 24. There's just a little insight given there. A great crowd followed him and thronged or pressed in around him. I don't know if you've ever been in many big crowds. Maybe you try to avoid them. Uh, but there's a different aspect of walking when you get in a big crowd than when there are just a few people. The biggest crowd that I could ever remember being in went to New York City on New Year's Eve 2002 with my sister. We were in Times Square down in the streets. And as we're leaving the city after midnight, there's only so many trains out of the city. We were wall-to-wall people with those around us. You couldn't go fast. You had to keep going. And people are jostling you around a little bit and got into the subway car and it was full and people kept coming into the subway car. And that's what I think of with this. That's what I think. We need to think big crowd here coming with Jesus. And what is that doing? It's slowing up his time going to heal this daughter. It wasn't like he pulled out the lights and siren and cleared the way. He had to go with the pace of the crowd to go there. And as he's going, we get interrupted with another woman who had heard about Jesus. This is someone who had had a flow of blood for 12 years, likely some menstrual bleeding for 12 years. And as such, it would have left her very tired and weak. Uh, According to the law in Leviticus 15, 19 through 30, she would have been unable to go to the temple to worship, maybe kept a distance from people. What we need to understand is this drastically affected her life. And she was one who went to many doctors and had spent all that she had, and she didn't get any better. In fact, it was getting worse. She also was in a hopeless situation. She had no more money to spend, nothing else to do. In a very real sense, she also 
is dying. And she heard about Jesus, and she thought, if I just come and touch his clothes, it's, it's word for an outer garment, if I can just touch his cloak, his, his coat, then I'll be healed. It was the response of faith. She, wherever she got that idea that she could just touch his clothes, she was believing that if I can just get near enough and touch his clothes, he doesn't even have to speak to me. He doesn't even have to, have to touch me. If I can just near enough, then I will be healed. And so she works her way up through the crowd close to him, and she comes from behind and just touches his outer garment. We say in verse 29 that immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she was healed of her affliction. Just like that, she was healed. Remember the big crowd all around Jesus? But at that moment, Jesus knew that power had gone out of him, and so he stops and he looks around and he asks, Who touched my clothes? I'm going to think back to times. switch. If you're in the midst of that crowd wondering who touched me, people look around like there's a lot of people here. Uh, Chill, just relax. It's not a big deal. They're not trying to, to hurt you. We're just bumping into you here. And that's what his disciples say. Like there's a lot of people here. Why are you worrying about someone who touched you? But Jesus knew that power, this was different than just a bump. Power had gone from him and he continues to look around to her. Because I think Jesus wanted her to know him not just as her healer, but also as her savior. He wanted to talk to her. And so she comes, and it says in verse 33, with fear and trembling. I don't think it's the sense of being terrified. I think it's the sense of being respectful, reverent, like, wow, Jesus just healed me. Now he wants to talk to me. And she tells him everything. She told him the whole truth. Jesus responds in verse 34 with compassion. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That word for well can also be translated saved, made whole, cleansed. And I think Jesus means both here. She was made physically well through her faith but also through her faith by believing that Jesus was who he says he was, even whatever she understood, that he is who he says he is, that he, she also was saved from her sins and her life was forever changed. And I think that Jesus stopping and talking to her helps us see that, that he wanted her not just to know him as her healer, but also as her savior and remember, this is the middle story. This is the meat. And so we got to look at this and see what is Jesus trying to show us through this that he wants also the leader of the, the ruler of the synagogue to understand too. And I think it's that key there in verse 34, faith. Faith. That the leader of the synagogue, Jairus, also needed to respond to Jesus in faith. If you could imagine how Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, was feeling at this moment. Remember, his daughter was dying. 
He had to move slowly because of the crowd. And now Jesus stopped and talked to this woman. And then there come messengers from his house in verse 35. Say, it's too late. Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. What a mix of emotions must have been going through his mind at that time. I have to think that at least some degree, Jesus, if you didn't stop and help her and talk to her, then maybe my daughter would still be alive. There wasn't this big crowd around here. We could go faster to be, be with my daughter, but now it's too late. But before he can say anything, Jesus overheard this message and he says to the ruler of the synagogue in verse 36, he says, don't be afraid. Exactly what the man would have been feeling, don't be afraid, only believe. You see, he urges the man to respond to him in faith, to take him as his word. He doesn't make any promises of what he will do. He says, you can trust me with the situation. You can trust me whatever I will do with it. Just like the woman believed Jesus, he wanted this man to believe in him and trust him. And so he put, uh, had the crowd stop following him and only Peter, James, and John, verse 37, came along with him, this inner circle of the disciples. And as they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, it says they, they saw a tumult, a big commotion. And in that day, they would... Uh, mourn, not just family members, but even they would hire people to mourn. This is uh, the weeping and and wailing. It's not just uh, silent tears coming down the face. It's a sobbing that they would do. And the the wails, I'm not going to try to imitate it for you, but you can just imagine that would be. Just this noise going on, all this commotion. Why? Because she was dead. They knew that. They wouldn't be mourning if she wasn't dead. And so Jesus comes upon this, and he asks, why are you acting this way? Why are you mourning and and weeping? The child's not dead but sleeping. And you can imagine, just like the the people, we're here because she's dead. And so they mock him. They make fun of him and laugh at him in verse 40. Uh, But Jesus is still the one in charge. He is the sovereign Lord, the one who is in control of the situation. And he says, you need to stay outside. And he listened. And he took with him the girl's parents and Peter, James, and John, and they entered into the room. And he speaks to the little girl, taking her by the hand. He says in verse 41, Talitha kumi. It's actually Aramaic. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. That would have been the common tongue of the the day. Uh, And uh, I don't know about you, but... In Roman, first century, but also today, not too many people know Aramaic. So it's translated for us. What it means there is given to us, little girl, I say to you, arise. What compassion, what tenderness he shows towards her. And the moment he says that to her, she gets up, starts walking around. The one who had been dead is now alive because Jesus is Lord. Death is not in charge. Jesus is in charge. And it tells us that she was 12 years of age, not a little baby, but 12 years. 
And I, I'm not sure of anything insightful of the 12 years that the woman had the affliction and 12 years old here. At the very least, we could see the impact of this here upon the people there. And as they responded, they were overcome with great amazement. I mean, his, his, his day forever changed because his little girl is alive now. But Jesus tells them, verse 43, don't tell others about this. And I think the insight here, Jesus is not looking for more attention. He's having a hard enough time just walking around from town to town. And if they knew that he could also raise the dead even more, uh, they might gather around him. I think that was just kind of for that time. Now we should make his great deeds known. And in compassion, he says to give her something to eat. This would also emphasize for them, she's not a ghost. She can eat. She's truly alive. Uh, take care of your little girl. In both of these miracles, Jesus shows his power. He shows his power over illness. He shows his power over death. And he heals the illness. He raises her from the dead. And he does so in the midst of hopeless situations. And they didn't know what else to do. They didn't know where else to turn. They turned to Jesus. Jesus, the one who wanted them to trust him, showed his power in those situations. We need to think and consider why we even have sickness and death in our world. Back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God said the consequence of their sin would be death. And with death being in the world, there's sickness and disease that enters as well that leads up to death. And so that's why it's in the world. And Jesus, as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord, he is showing here that he is victorious over it. He's not limited by it, that he can heal, that he can raise the dead. And he's doing so, showing not just a one-time aspect of his power, one-time defeat, but it's going to point, I think, ultimately to his final defeat over death upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing to Timothy about the gospel, and he writes there in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. And walking through the gospel with Timothy, he urges him to not be ashamed of it because this is what saves people from their sins. As they say, yes, I'm a sinner against holy God, but I trust that Jesus Christ died for me upon the cross and rose again. God gives them eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that's your reality. If not, I urge you to make that decision to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins. And he emphasizes there in verse 9 that salvation is not according to our works. It's not according to our good deeds, our religious deeds, 
but it's a gift by God's grace. And when he gives that gift, he shows the extent of the sacrifice of Christ and the victory of his death upon the cross, that Jesus Christ has abolished death. His death is the means by which death one day will be no more. Hebrews 2 speaks about Jesus Christ delivering us from the fear of death. And 1 Corinthians 15, I encourage you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15 emphasizes this as well. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's saying Christ truly has risen from the dead, and he, his resurrection is the first fruits, the first of many other resurrections of those who have fallen asleep. In this case, it is those who have died. For since by man, that is through Adam, came death, by man, that is through Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in its own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. And down to verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. He's speaking of a resurrection for the believer. Their body will be raised and receive a glorified body with God forever and ever. But he's also saying the unbeliever will be raised and they will receive an eternal body for the lake of fire, separated from God forever and ever. And the last enemy that is destroyed is death. Death will one day be no more. Why? Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus here in Mark is, is showing this is what is going to take place because of my death. Death doesn't have the final word. Jesus does. There's a poem John Doane wrote. It says, Death, be not proud. I'm going to read a little bit for you. It says, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow die not, poor death, nor yet Canst thou kill me? Later on in the poem, one short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more, death shalt die. For the believer in Christ, death does not have the final word. Jesus does. And so though we pray, in illness, for recovery, we go to the doctor. We seek to take care of our bodies. But yet we also surrender to the Lord in the midst of illness. We know that some illnesses are final. They take us. And we can trust the Lord with those things as we pray and surrender to his will Sometimes he gives healing, sometimes he waits, sometimes he says no. But even when death comes, 
We remember because of the gospel of Christ that death does not have the final word. Jesus Christ has conquered it. And so we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Jesus Christ has given victory over death. We're on the winning side through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what he wants us, just like the woman, just like the ruler of the synagogue, that's how he wants us to respond to Jesus, by faith, trusting him as the Son of God, the Savior who died for us and rose again, and trusting him with the illness, trusting him as we face death or face death of someone around us, trusting our God and our Savior. Death does it seem at times like it wins, but it doesn't. Jesus is Lord over it. Remember John Patton in the tree? He writes, which gives us an indication if he's able to write about it, he's going to survive it. He writes, the hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves And the night air played on my throbbing brow, and I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all, all alone in the middle, In midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? He found Christ to be enough, even in the face of death. And that's what we can and should as well, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior who died for us and rose again, the Son of God, we can find peace comfort in the presence of Jesus. 